passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. One of the most popular Christmas CDs that just came out recently is by the group Pentatonics. Uh, I don't know if you have heard of Pentatonics before, but they are the winner, or the winner of the show, the sound or sing off rather, uh, from a couple years ago. And they're an entire acapella group. And their new CD is called "That's Christmas to Me." And I was really interested by what exactly they meant by that, so I decided to look at the title track from their new CD, That's Christmas to Me, and see what they say is Christmas. So this, just a couple verses from this song. It says this, I see the children play outside like angels in the snow, while mom and daddy share a kiss under the mistletoe, and we'll cherish all these simple things wherever we may be. Oh, why? Because that's Christmas to me. I listen for the thud of reindeer walking on the roof, As I fall asleep to lullabies, the morning's coming soon. The only gift I'll ever need is the joy of family. Oh, why? Because that's Christmas to me. Is Pentatonics right? Are they on to something when they say the purpose of Christmas for them is time spent with family? doesn't matter. Notice what they say. They don't say that this is the one overarching purpose of Christmas. They say that this is their purpose. This is what Christmas means to them. Does Christmas have many different meanings for many different people? Is it okay for us to believe in something and someone else to believe in some other purpose for the season? See, as, Christmas, as Christians, what exactly does Christmas mean to us? Are we stuck just saying the rather admittedly cliche, Jesus is the reason for the season over and over and over again? Uh, A recent new movie was put out by Kirk Cameron. It's called Kirk Cameron's Saving Christmas. And it was the first movie I've ever seen get a 0% on the movie review site Rotten Tomatoes. Are we as Christians stuck watching Kirk Cameron's Saving Christmas as the true purpose of Christmas for the rest of our lives? These are the questions that this text wrestles with this morning. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 80. And as we're studying this, we're going to see it talk about the story of John the Baptist's birth. See, this is a story, again, that's probably familiar with you. We've been going through the first chapter of Luke for the last couple weeks. And as we've been studying this, we've really been focusing on the purpose Luke has for writing this gospel. And the purpose Luke gives us is to give us certainty about the things of Jesus, to give us certainty about who God is, and especially who God is in the manger here in Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2. And as we turn the page to this section of Luke's gospel, it may sound a little bit confusing that we're talking about John the Baptist's birth, but this is a passage that is fully and utterly about Jesus. See, as we open our text this morning, we're going to see that it tells us three gifts that Jesus gives to humanity when he comes to earth. There are three things that Jesus gives to us that he brings with him when he comes to earth for us. Most of our time we're going to be spending in uh, verses 67 through 80, but I think it's appropriate before we do that to just spend a few moments in verses 57 through 66. So uh, if you have a Bible, I invite you to follow along as I read aloud. If not, it's printed in your sermon notes as well as on the screen behind me. So please follow along starting in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. 
and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by that name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came upon all of their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them have laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with them. John's birth is finally here. This is the moment that Zechariah has been waiting for for decades. His entire life, he's been waiting for a son, and now he's finally given one. As we looked at Zechariah and Elizabeth's story a couple weeks ago, I encouraged us to put ourselves in his shoes. And I want us to just do that one more time, to think through what it would be like to be Zechariah in this moment. See, remember, Zechariah hasn't been able to speak for over nine months. For nine months, he has been silent. And the angel told him that once these things happen, you'll be able to speak again. Well, the phrase there, what, uh, once these things happen, is a little bit vague. And so I imagine Zechariah first thought that these things was once he knew that Elizabeth was pregnant, that God was at work, and that he would begin to be able to speak again once Elizabeth was pregnant. But that's not the case. Then the next thing is, well, John or Zechariah probably thought that once John was born, he would be able to speak. But John's birth comes and goes, and Zechariah is unable to speak. This had to be the hardest time of Zechariah's life. To see God tangibly answering his prayers and being unable to open his mouth and to praise God verbally, out loud, for all that God had done for him. When Crystal and I were in Chicago at the church that I did my internship at, there was a woman who was uh, one of the spiritual giants of this church. She had been there for years. Uh, Her children had gone out as missionaries, and and everyone just really looked up to her. But before we joined the church, a couple years earlier, she was diagnosed with a form of ALS that took away her ability to talk. And I remember being there uh, several Sundays and just looking at her and seeing her in tears because she was unable to verbalize all of the good things that God had done for her, unable to sing praises to God because her voice was gone. And I think in a way, it's exactly what Zechariah is experiencing here. He's seen God answer his prayers. He's seen God at work in his life. And he's unable to open his mouth and to praise God for it. But unlike uh, my friend at our previous church, Zechariah does receive his speech back. He does receive the ability to talk. And once he talks, he praises God. It's really significant. He's had nine months to think about what's going on. Nine months to be slow to speak, if you will, about what is happening here. And the rest of our time really focuses on what are the words that flow out of Zechariah's mouth? What are the things that he thinks are so important that they are the first things that he is going to say once he has his speech back? Again, I mentioned earlier that he tells us that there are three gifts that Jesus brings with him when he comes to earth. And that's what we're going to be focusing on in the rest of our time together in this song. And the first thing is that Jesus comes with redemption. Jesus 
comes with redemption. Please uh, follow along, starting in verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Jesus comes with redemption. And when we hear that phrase, that word, redemption, we, we tend to associate it with the church. But today in our culture, the word redemption can often be water, watered down. We can often use redemption to mean something that's a little short of what it meant back in the day. An example of this is uh, in sports today. In uh, basketball or football or baseball, or it doesn't matter what the sport, whenever someone makes a really boneheaded play and it hurts the team, and then later on in the game, they do something to make up for it, we say that they have redeemed themselves. They've redeemed, they've made up for the mistakes that they made. Or another example is in uh, a situation where a public figure screws up royally and actually gets sent to prison. I think of, of Chuck Colson, actually, is a good example of this. And afterwards, uh, after getting out of prison, spending the rest of their life dedicated to making up for the things that they have done. They are at work, and our society says that they are redeeming themselves. They're at work making up for the things that they have done. That's what our society typically thinks of when we think of redemption. There's just one problem with that. The Bible tells us that it's impossible for us to redeem ourselves. It's impossible for us to do enough to make up for the things that happened in our past. It's impossible for us to try harder, to cover over the things that we have once done. See, in ancient times, the the word redemption was used in referring to slaves. Whenever you would want to free a slave, you would redeem them. You would pay money to free them from their slavery. And in the Bible, there are really two specific examples of when God redeems his people. The first one is when the people of Israel are trapped in slavery in Egypt. They've been slaves for over 400 years to the Egyptians. They're crying out for God to come and save them. And if you were to go up to the uh, Israelites at that time and say, well, why don't you just redeem yourself? Why don't you just make up for your wrongdoings? Why don't you just free yourself? They would look at you and they would say, Why don't you just come down into this pit and help us work on these things? Because it's impossible for us to redeem ourselves. The text in Exodus tells us that God came and visited his people. Notice the language that Zechariah uses in this passage. God comes and visits his people, Israel, in Egypt while they're in slavery, and he redeems them. God comes and visits, and then there is redemption. Another example from Israel's history is about 400 years before Jesus was born, when the people of Israel are sent into uh, exile. They are uh, captured and sent into modern-day Iraq, where they are forced to live under their Babylonian and Persian oppressors. And the people of Israel are trapped. But God comes and visits Israel. His people, again, notice the language that Zechariah uses here. God comes and visits his people and brings redemption, frees them from the oppression that they are experiencing. The connection that Zechariah is making here is that God redeems his people when he comes and visits them. 
Redemption is not possible outside of the presence of God. And praise God that at Christmas, Jesus comes to be with humanity. Jesus comes. God comes to visit humanity to bring redemption for us. God brings redemption for us. I love the imagery that Zechariah uses here. It's pretty interesting for the modern-day reader where he talks about this horn of salvation. This is the way that God is bringing redemption for us. He talks about this horn of salvation. He's not referring to a French horn or a, or a trumpet or a bugle or anything like that. In the old times, uh, in ancient times, a horn was a sign of power, just like for a wild animal. You don't want to mess with a Texas longhorn because their horns are intimidating. It's a sign of power. In the book of Revelation, it talks a lot about horns, and each of those horns refers to a different ruler. What Zechariah is saying here is that God will bring power for salvation. But notice that he doesn't just say power for salvation. He says that he will raise up the horn of salvation. God's power is seen most clearly in the resurrection. When Jesus is raised up, God brings salvation for his people. The incredible thing is, this isn't just something that Zechariah is saying for the first time. It's been prophesied from the very beginning. That's what Zechariah mentions here, that the prophets of old have spoken about this happening, and now it's finally happening. If you were here with us last week, we saw that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises. All of God's promises are finally fulfilled in the person of Jesus, and that's exactly what Zechariah is saying here, too, that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that takes place in the Old Testament. And he brings us this redemption that has been spoken of centuries beforehand. He brings us this redemption to save us, to deliver us from our enemies. You see, God doesn't just save you from your sins. God, God saves you from your enemies. In the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, David prays about the enemies that God has saved him from over and over and over again. And for us, in our situation, it might not seem like we have though, uh, too many enemies. Not too many people are out trying to kill us here in the United States. But what he's saying here is that God doesn't just save us from our sin. God saves us from our condescending and annoying and uh, condemning co-workers. God saves us from those who gossip against us, who slander against us. God saves us from our enemies because Jesus comes with redemption. Second thing is Jesus comes with mercy. Jesus comes with mercy. Take a look, starting in verse 72. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. See, in Jesus, we see God's mercy for humanity. The fact that God passes over what we deserve to give us what we don't deserve. And the reason why is because he remembers Zechariah points out that God remembers and always will remember his covenant, always will remember the promises that he made to humanity. He will keep the commitments that he has made to his people. 
And in the book of Genesis, we have a similar, uh, similar language crops up in the story of Noah. Now, we probably all heard the story of Noah in the past, that the wickedness of humanity was great, and so God decided that he was going to send a flood on the world to wipe out humanity and really just start over with Noah and his family. And so God tells Noah to build a giant boat and to bring on, on it seven kinds of uh, clean animals and, and two of every kind of unclean animal and to be on this boat. And so Noah does so. And after the entire world is flooded and the floods recede, Noah walks out of the ark and he makes a sacrifice. He makes an offering to God. And then there's this language that takes place where God says, never again will I flood the earth. And he says, I'm going to remember my covenant with humanity. And not only that, but I'm going to give myself a sign to remember that covenant. And he says that he's going to put a bow in the sky. And when we tend to when we think of that, we think of the rainbow. I have no issue with that. But the language that's found in the book of Genesis isn't just uh, a harmless little bow. It's actually a battle bow that is cocked, ready to fire if God ever forgets his covenant, ready to fire upon God. And the remarkable thing about Christmas is that battle bow is fired. It's fired upon Jesus. The wrath of God upon all of humanity that has been pent up for generations is now being unleashed upon the person of Jesus. Jesus comes with mercy and Jesus comes to give us what we don't deserve by taking the wrath, by wearing the brunt of God's wrath against us. Jesus comes with mercy. See, not only that, but because God comes with mercy, he grants us deliverance. Uh, One of my good friends several years ago was a uh, chaplain in the North Carolina prison system. And one time while he was visiting with a prisoner, uh, this man was a new Christian and began talking about the the things of faith. And one of the things that they got on the topic of was uh, was spiritual gifts. And so my friend begins talking about spiritual gifts, and, and uh, the prisoner he's meeting with, a new Christian, says, uh, spiritual gifts, what, what do you, exactly do you mean by that? And so my, man, my friend begins to explain, well, these are things that, that God has given us for, for his kingdom. And uh, so the man says, well, spiritual gifts, you mean like kung fu, right? And my friend looks at him and starts to laugh, but then realizes, well, This man's dead serious, and so he says very graciously, well, what exactly do you mean by that? And so he begins to tell this story of how uh, a few weeks earlier, once he had just become a Christian, there was a gang in the prison that decided that they were going to uh, gang up on him, and they were going to attack him. And so there were about 15 of these men who were circling him, and the, the new Christian was in the middle, and the first one runs at him. And this man doesn't know any sort of mixed martial arts, but somehow grabs the guy's arm and twists him, throws him on his back so he's facing the opposite way and just begins spinning in a circle, knocking everyone out that's coming to attack him until the guards come. It's just the craziest story I think I've ever heard. And uh, I'm I'm trusting my friend that it's a true story. I don't know if it is or not, but I'm just going to assume that it is for the sake of of him telling me. And we're not going to get into the uh, spiritual... uh, or the theology of whether there is an actual spiritual gift of Kung Fu, but it's a good example of the fact that God will deliver his people. God will deliver his people from their enemies, that he will protect them 
from their enemies. Of course, most of the time it's not physical in the ways that God delivers us. You just look at the martyrs throughout the church's history and they will attest that God's deliverance is often not physical. But God's deliverance is deeper than that. God delivers us from the condemnation of those who have it out for us. God ensures that nothing that they say will be held against us in the final judgment of God, that he will one day deliver us and we can trust him knowing that he is worthy of our trust because he will deliver us. See, not only does God deliver us, but God delivers us for service. And that's what what Zechariah again says in this passage. I think this is a really neglected part of salvation. God has saved us for service. I mentioned Chuck Colson earlier. And Chuck Colson was writing a biography about this man named William Wilberforce. I brought him up in the past. Uh, But William Wilberforce, after his conversion, he just shares this little excerpt of his life and, and what was going on in Wilberforce's life. I just want to read this to you. It says this. Wilberforce sat at his desk on that foggy Sunday morning in 1787. He was thinking about his conversion and his calling. Had God saved him only to rescue his own soul from hell? He could not accept that. If Christianity was true and meaningful, it must not only save, but serve. If Christianity is true and meaningful, it must not only save, but it must serve as well. And that's what Zechariah is pointing out here, that God has saved us so that way we can serve those who are around us, that we can serve God himself. The language he uses here is the same language that's used of priests in the Old Testament. That we are priests before God, serving him. So the question is, how are you serving? How are you serving those who are around you? How are you using the gifts that God has given you to serve him? It's a part of salvation. If your salvation is true and meaningful, in what ways are you using that to serve God with your life? Jesus comes with mercy. Jesus comes to deliver us through that mercy. And part of that deliverance is salvation. And the third thing that Jesus comes with is light. Jesus comes with light. Take a look at verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to give our feet, to guide our feet, rather, into the way of peace. I think one of the most striking things about this passage is what it says about John. And I love what it says about John here. See, remember, this is Zechariah's first words after the birth of his son that he's been waiting for for decades. You would think that he would begin praising God for giving him this son. But the entire song is about Jesus. There are a few verses that actually talk about John, and we just read those. But even those verses are really about Jesus. And if you look at John's life in the Gospels, you would conclude that that's exactly the way John would want it to be. It's exactly what John would want. 
for his entire life to be focused on Jesus. There's a story from the Gospel of John where uh, years later, John is with his followers. And Jesus has just begun his ministry, and people are starting to flock to Jesus. And John's followers are getting a little nervous because they're starting to lose their popularity to this new guy on the block. And they say, John, what are we going to do? Because everyone's going after Jesus. And John just simply says, he must increase, I must decrease. It's the entire focus of John's life. He must increase, I must decrease. My entire life is focused on reflecting the praise that I've given and giving it to God, giving him the glory in all these things. You see, John understood the purpose of life, and that was to lift up Jesus in every single thing that he had done. There's another verse uh, found in Mark that I think is really powerful that tells us about John's life. Uh, It's a really simple verse, and it just mentions John briefly because it's really about Jesus, and it says this, Mark 1, 14, it says this, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Notice what it says there, after John was arrested. John had played his part. John was chosen by God to open for Jesus, to set the stage, to prepare everyone for the coming of Jesus. And once he did that, Jesus came and John faded into the background. John did his part fabulously. He reflected all praise to God. He prepared the way for God in Jesus to come. And then he fades into the background. See, John comes to prepare the way, but Jesus comes with illumination. That's what Zechariah is referring to here when he talks about this sunrise. That Jesus is like a sunrise. When Jesus comes, there is light for humanity. There is now a way for us to see God. Before Jesus came, all of us were dwelling in darkness. That's what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, when he says this, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light shines. See, we're unable to know God fully besides for the person of Jesus. Before Jesus came, it wasn't possible for us to fully know God. But then Jesus comes. And Jesus reveals more of who God is to us. And in the book of Ephesians, Paul tells us uh, and actually prays for the, the people in Ephesus that they would have God illuminate their hearts, would turn on the light bulb in their hearts so that way they could understand God more, that they could begin to see more of who God is. That's exactly what John says in the book of John, starting in uh, chapter 1, verse 14. It says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace from grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. John tells us that once Jesus comes, we can see God. Does he mean this in a literal way? Well, not exactly. I mean, yes, when we see Jesus, we actually see God because Jesus is God and people could actually see him when he was walking around on the face of the planet. But in a much deeper way, 
What John is saying here is that when we see Jesus, we see the fullness of what God is like. In Jesus, we see the fullness of God's love for humanity. In Jesus, we see the fullness of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness for humanity. All of these things are found in Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, then you look at Jesus. Jesus comes to illuminate our hearts, to reveal to us what God is like. And the final thing that that Peter mentions here is, is he's talking about this light. He says that peace is only found in Jesus. See, today we seek for peace. Every government on the face of the planet seemingly tries to establish peace, either through terror or through actually seeking peace. And yet it's so elusive. It's always something that we miss out on. Even the peace in between different people is missing. There are broken families during the Christmas season. Just yesterday, two cops were shot and killed because of the lack of peace in between different races here in the United States. Peace is elusive, and yet Jesus comes to bring peace. See, it's not just an individual peace. It's more than that. It's not just peace setting different nations who are at war with one another at peace. It's deeper than that. And the Bible talks about peace as really referring to harmony, to making everything right, to making things the way it should be. See, when everything is made right, to restore to the way it once was, then there will be peace. When there is no more sin or death, then there will be peace. When there's no more hate or hurting, then there will be peace. And all that peace is found in Jesus. What Zechariah is doing here, he's looking forward to the day when God will come and establish his kingdom here on the earth, the messianic kingdom, found in what John describes in Revelation chapter 21. It's a long passage. I just want to read it to you here. It says this, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. This peace that we long for, that Jesus will bring. It's like a thirsty person whose thirst is quenched. And that's what John is saying, again, in that that passage from Revelation. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Jesus comes to establish peace. And that's the good news of God coming to earth in Jesus. That's the good news of Christmas. 
that God dwells among humanity in the person of Jesus, that this peace has come. And one day this peace will be fully realized when Jesus comes again, Jesus' second advent. This is the last time that we see Zechariah and Elizabeth in the story of Luke. After this, they just disappear. They fade into the background. We don't really know what happens to them. We don't really even see all that much about what happens to John in his life. We just get this one verse, John, uh, in, in verse 80 here. It says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. See, we don't know what happens to them, but it doesn't really matter. The purpose of Luke's gospel isn't for us to know all of the details about Zechariah and Elizabeth's life. The purpose of John's go- or of Luke's gospel, rather, is for us to have certainty concerning the things of God. And that's exactly what Zechariah's last words do. Zechariah fades from the scene, but his words echo throughout eternity, pointing to Jesus, telling us just who this Jesus is. And that's really what Christmas is about. That's really what our passage is about this morning. The Pentatonics group, they they got it wrong. Christmas isn't a subjective thing that varies from person to person. There is one purpose for Christmas, and it is this, that Christmas is about God doing the improbable to accomplish the impossible. Christmas is about God doing the improbable, coming to earth as a human to accomplish the impossible, to end the war between us and God, to raise the dead to life in Jesus. Christmas is about God doing the improbable to accomplish the impossible. There's not different meanings for Christmas. There is one improbable, impossible meaning, one purpose that's found in Jesus. See, this is a good reminder for us that Jesus comes to humanity with redemption. Jesus comes to humanity with mercy, and Jesus comes with, to humanity to reveal to us what God is like, to shine light on who God is. That's what our passage is telling us, but it also gives us a little bit of how we respond and I think that the way that we should respond as Christians is really summed up in, in the life of John. See, if you look at John's life, you look and you see the, the good model of how to live a life fully dedicated to God and to his glory, fully focused on reflecting praise to him with all of our lives. Was John perfect? No. But John was utterly focused on God in his entire life. And that's what it really looks for us to serve God, as Zechariah mentions in this passage, to reflect John, to follow the model of John as we seek to glorify God, knowing that there is one purpose. And that purpose is that Jesus has come to us to restore us to God. And he does that by bringing redemption, by bringing mercy, and by bringing light. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have come. We thank you for the good news of Christmas. We thank you for what you have done for us. And we thank you for the commitment you have to continue 
to walk with us, to continue to go before us, showing us more of who you are through your spirit. God, help us to serve you. Help us to live our lives as acts of worship, offering our lives as sacrifices before you, just as John does, to your praise, to your glory, and for the good of those who are around us. God, we thank you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.